Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part 13 of my deep dive into the history of video games. Nintendo bounced back in a big way with the release of the Switch, which outperformed the Wii U and reignited excitement for the company's future. However, 2017 also saw the rise of the infamous loot box controversy, with Battlefront 2 at the center of the storm. Loot boxes, those virtual grab bags of in-game items, had been around for years, but it was in 2017 that their impact on the gaming landscape became impossible to ignore. Battlefront 2 sparked an unprecedented backlash, as players and critics alike argued that the game's loot box system was manipulative and pay-to-win. The outcry became so intense that lawmakers and regulatory bodies around the world took notice, leading to investigations and discussions about the future of loot boxes in gaming. In the midst of these industry-shaking events, IGN, a major gaming review website, acquired Humble Bundle, a game publisher and distribution channel. This raised eyebrows and sparked debates about the potential conflict of interest and ethical implications. The concern was that a website site responsible for reviewing games was now in a position to profit from the sale of those very games, a situation many deemed highly unethical. Funko Pop, purveyor of all things tchotchke, decided to go public, but it simply couldn't shake the half a billion dollars in debt the company had racked up, and suffered one of the worst performing IPOs of the 21st century, with shares dropping 41% in a single day. Meanwhile, the retro revival trend continued to thrive. Sonic Mania, a game developed by a team of fans and modders, was released by Sega and became the best-received Sonic game of the century. On the other hand, Ukulele, a Kickstarter darling that broke records with their multi-million dollar crowdfunding, failed to make a significant impact and was outshone by Mario Odyssey, showing that retro vibes were more important than developer badges. Bubsy 4 also made its debut in 2017. Despite receiving negative reviews and being dubbed the worst game of all time by many, there were still those who found enjoyment in the game, appreciating Bubsy as a cool cat character. Okami finally broke a million sales after 12 years. Capcom, bless them, tried their best to give the mad geniuses at Clover Studio as wide a berth as they needed to create their special brand of games. That goodwill resulted in the excellent Beautiful Joe series, the completely bonkers God Hand, and Okami. Sadly, none of Clover's releases found a major foothold. Its project leads eventually left, leading to Clover's dissolution in 2006. Despite these pitfalls, Capcom seemed to know it had something special with Okami. On top of producing a still-underrated spin-off, Okamiden, for the Nintendo DS, and giving Amaterasu a place of honor in the Marvel v. Capcom 3 roster, Capcom has ported the game to pretty much every single platform since its release, exposing it to an audience that has continued to grow through sheer word of mouth. The game may have flopped at launch, but it has since gone on to sell a million copies. Good dog. How did the loot box controversy shape the conversation around game monetization and player experience in 2017. What role did the Battlefront 2 debacle play in prompting the industry to evaluate its approach to microtransactions? Nintendo's success with the Switch demonstrated that innovation in a strong lineup of games could still capture the hearts of players around the world. How did the Switch's resurgence impact Nintendo's strategy and vision for the future, and what ripple effects did it have on the broader gaming landscape? 
Breath of the Wild benefited greatly from the development team deviating from the more linear path of its predecessor, Skyward Sword, leading into an expansive, immersive experience. It took the industry by surprise with its sales numbers. This title didn't just sell well, it shattered records. We're talking about a game that sold more copies than the Nintendo Switch consoles it was supposed to be played on. A high attach rate of over 100% is virtually unheard of, and it suggests a consumer zeal extending beyond the traditional gamer. Collectors, for instance, snatched up multiple versions of the game. At the time, the industry had several pillars of open-world design. You had the Bethesda style, a sandbox filled with intricate, lore-rich quests seen in games like Skyrim. Then there was the Ubisoft style, vast, filled with collectibles and dripping with activities, think Far Cry or Assassin's Creed. Last but not least, the Rockstar style, emphasizing high-stakes storytelling and edgy social commentary a la Grand Theft Auto. Breath of the Wild, however, didn't just choose one of the existing pillars and erect a similar structure behind it. It went ahead and built its own. It focused less on structured activities and more on the fundamental joy of discovery and exploration. Yet, despite its acclaim, we've seen very few Breath of the Wild clones since. Why? Well, one possibility lies in risk aversion. The sheer man-hours needed to craft in an environment as intricately detailed as Hyrule is a risky investment, especially without the narrative crutches or plethora of side activities other open-world games lean on. Many studios might find it more pragmatic to stick with established templates that guarantee a return on investment. But Breath of the Wild is in a league of its own. It is an enigma and a trailblazer, yet it stands mostly alone, its formula left untouched, almost as if it's a garden that other developers admire but dare not enter. The game challenges the paradigm of what an open world can be, and yet its singularity could very well be why it's not often imitated. Horizon Zero Dawn has a unique combat system, a blend of fluidity, variety, and strategy. The game marries third-person shooter mechanics with stealth elements and even some RPG inventory management. Each robotic creature in the game's environment isn't just an obstacle, but a puzzle to solve. You can't just aim and shoot, you need to understand the creature's weak points, behavior patterns, and even dismantle armor pieces to effectively bring them down. Unlike many open-world games where enemies often serve as mere cannon fodder, here they are integral to both narrative and gameplay progression. This meticulous attention to individualized enemies makes each combat encounter feel like a mini-event within the larger epic. You're crafting your weapons, planning your approach, and then executing with a blend of grace and brutality that feels immensely satisfying. The game has an almost educational approach to resource management. These robotic creatures, they're also roaming resource banks. Whether you're collecting metal shards from a fallen grazer or ripping the cannon off a thunder jaw to use against it, there's an economic system at play here. Every creature has its own set of valuable components that you need for crafting, pushing players to not just battle, but to also understand their enemies, thereby forging a connection to this synthetic ecology. Horizon Zero Dawn released just a few days before Breath of the Wild. Both games were immediately 
immediately compared and contrasted ad nauseum. The timing, arguably, led to Horizon Zero Dawn being somewhat underrated despite selling incredibly well. Unlike Breath of the Wild's open-world design, which was more about providing a large canvas for player-induced narratives, Horizon Zero Dawn aimed for a more curated experience. It emphasized depth over sheer size, a laser focus on its narrative, a narrative that started slow, granted, but escalated into a rich tale that melded post-apocalyptic fears with primordial anxieties. The game opted for a more personal, human-centered storyline rather than the grand, mythical narratives common to the genre. This reflects a broader trend in gaming as the medium matures and developers strive for more meaningful storytelling. However, it should be noted that Horizon Zero Dawn's approach to player choices was more ornamental than consequential. Your decisions might affect how individual characters perceive the main character, but don't necessarily weave into the larger tapestry of the story, which is more or less set in stone. Horizon Zero Dawn's most interesting aspect, to me, is its quiet critique of typical open-world design, particularly that of Ubisoft's formulaic approach. Rather than stuffing the map with endless side quests and repetitive clear-the-camp missions, Horizon Zero Dawn opts for a more considered pacing. Side quests and bandit camps are fewer but better fleshed out, each contributing meaningfully to the world building and character development. The game shows that you can achieve a fulfilling open world experience without necessarily creating an endless laundry list of objectives for players. Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, PUBG, was standing on the shoulders of previous attempts at the Battle Royale genre. Brendan Green, the creative force behind the game, had already experimented with this style of play in modifications for Arma 2 and Arma 3, as well as his consulting work on H1Z1. But where games like The Culling had shown that Battle Royale could be fun, PUBG made it a phenomenon. And this wasn't just a trend, it became the keystone for a significant portion of the industry. In a shockingly short time, Battle Royale games started to account for upwards of 10% of the entire video game industry. So why did PUBG resonate so powerfully when it wasn't technically the first of its kind? Asymmetrical balance. Unlike traditional shooters where balance is meticulously crafted so no player has an unfair advantage, PUBG dropped you into a world of randomness. The loot was random, the plane's path was random, and even the closing circle was unpredictable. This asymmetry didn't just make each game different, it made each game a story, and those stories were shared in forums, on social media, and importantly, through streaming platforms, serving as free yet highly effective advertising that contributed massively to the game's viral success. PUBG became its own worst enemy by spreading itself too thin too quickly. At a time when the community was clamoring for server stability and optimizations, the developers were introducing new maps and weapon skins. It was like trying to paint a house that's on fire. The Miramar map, for instance, aimed to reduce the player count faster by having only a few hotspots where everyone would die quickly in the match for better server performance, but ended up feeling desolate and devoid of the tension that made the game engaging. This miscalculation was exacerbated by persistent issues like cheating, hacking, and poor optimization, which began to turn players away. While the word mismanagement might sound a bit harsh, it's hard to deny that some of the choices made post-launch played a role in the game's decreased player engagement. The frequent delays in 
updates, lackluster community communication, and a sense that the developers weren't adequately addressing core gameplay issues all contributed to a narrative of decline. The game also suffered due to timing, not in its release, but in the subsequent failure to capitalize on its early mover advantage. While PUBG was grappling with internal challenges, other studios with more resources were quick to jump on the Battle Royale train, refining and sometimes outright surpassing PUBG's rough but revolutionary model. Despite these setbacks, PUBG played a pivotal role in popularizing not just a genre, but a mode of interactive storytelling that prioritized player agency. It became the best-selling PC game ever, surpassing even Minecraft. It was a cultural event, influencing everything from game design education to the live streaming landscape. Studio MDHR's Cuphead is a tour de force in game design and visual presentation, to say the least. With its unique 1930s hand-drawn art style, painstakingly created frame by frame, the game was a visual masterpiece that captivated both players and critics alike. This visually arresting style wasn't just a coat of paint, it informed the game's entire identity. From the mechanics to the score, a delightful pastiche of jazz, big band, and ragtime, Cuphead was all the more remarkable in an era dominated by 3D game engines and lifelike CGI. It harkened back to the golden age of animation and the nascent days of video gaming while offering a deeply challenging modern gameplay experience. But this charm and nostalgia-inducing aesthetic did more than capture hearts. It set the stage for an intriguing controversy that lives on in discussions today. You see, Cuphead is infamous for its grueling difficulty, particularly its boss battles. This difficulty level isn't just a matter of enemy hit points or better AI, it's a design philosophy, one that's rooted in the arcade tradition where games were explicitly hard to keep you dropping quarters. But unlike arcade games, or even notoriously challenging modern titles like Dark Souls, Cuphead arguably challenges the player with unfair difficulty. Now when I say unfair, it's key to understand that we're not talking about a game that's buggy or poorly designed. Quite the contrary, Cuphead is meticulously crafted. The controversy lies in how the game requires you to learn through failure, using memorization as a mechanic in itself. Where other difficult games like Dark Souls offer a difficulty curve that can be navigated by player skill and real-time adaptation, Cuphead sets a stage where you are intended to die, again and again, to understand enemy behavior. There's a debate here that straddles the line between traditional difficulty and what some perceive as artificial difficulty. This has become a hot-button issue, with players falling into camps that argue either for the game's high-skill ceiling or against its repetitive, memorization-heavy approach. However, there's a less discussed nuance to this design philosophy. The very controversy it created fostered a robust, engaged community. Forums, Reddit threads, and Discord channels filled with advice, strategies, and war stories. It led to a form of communal learning that is rare in single-player games. This in turn impacted not just how the game was played, but also how it was experienced as a collective. It wasn't just about defeating the bosses, it was about sharing the how and basking in mutual accomplishments. The game's visual language, deeply embedded in 1930s cartoons, conveyed information in a manner that made the 
difficulty somewhat more digestible. Bosses signaled their next moves through exaggerated facial expressions, and attack animations had a wind-up period that mimicked the tells seen in classic cartoons. This allowed players to anticipate and thus better react once they caught on to these cues. It was as if the game was encouraging you to read it the same way you'd read a comic strip, interpreting visual cues to understand the sequence of events. Cuphead's legacy isn't just in its return to traditional animation or its unapologetic difficulty, it's in how it challenges traditional definitions of fairness and difficulty, eliciting strong emotions and opinions from its player base. Sega's strategic decision to acquire Atlas, a company known for its strong track record in localizing niche Japanese games like the Persona series, set the stage for a transformation in how Japanese games were introduced to the Western market. This acquisition wasn't just a business move, it was a powerful statement that sought to redefine the relationship between Japanese video games and their burgeoning international fan base. At the heart of this alliance was a shared vision to accelerate the localization process. The goal was simple but ambitious. Get these uniquely Japanese games into the hands of eager international fans and do it fast. And this vision soon bore fruit in the form of an industry-changing title. Yakuza 0. Before this game, Yakuza 5 had already generated some buzz thanks in part to a better localization process, but it was Yakuza 0 that seized the spotlight, fanned into life by Sega's localization advancements thanks to the Atlas acquisition. The game's global release was now almost simultaneous with its release in Japan. This was a win-win for everyone. Developers faced less risk of piracy and loss of interest, while players could engage in a global conversation about the game as it happened. But Yakuza Zero's impact went beyond timing. It broke down cultural barriers, disproving the idea that Japanese games couldn't make it big in the West. The game excelled in storytelling and character development, aspects that appealed to audiences worldwide. While Yakuza Zero did build upon the concepts introduced by earlier titles like Shenmue, it took those ideas to the next level. It offered a world that was both dynamic and captivating balancing story and gameplay in a way that kept players deeply engaged. The game's success created a ripple effect, influencing how other Japanese games were viewed in the West. The industry now had the confidence to believe that games steeped in Japanese culture could be universally appealing. This paved the way for other Japanese titles to successfully cross over to Western markets, shifting the narrative that had previously declared Japanese gaming to be on the decline. Yakuza Zero's influence was also felt in the series itself. Later releases like Kiwami, Kiwami 2, and Yakuza 6 were more than just sequels, they were evolutions. They took the successful elements of Yakuza Zero, such as pacing, tone, and storytelling, and refined them. Remarkably, Sega started releasing two Yakuza games a year, a level of consistency not even their previously iconic character, Sonic, could match. What Yakuza 0 really accomplished was more than just its own success. It served as a critical counterpoint to the prevailing narrative around Japanese games, particularly highlighting the shortcomings of companies like Square. Square's inconsistent marketing strategies had been a sore point for fans and analysts alike. While they labeled games like Hitman, Deus Ex, Tomb Raider, and Sleeping Dogs, 
dogs as failures. Despite their substantial following and critical acclaim, their Japanese-focused titles, which performed relatively worse, were hailed as successes. With Yakuza 0, it was becoming clear to consumers that the issue lay not with the marketability of these games, but with Square's ineptitude in marketing them. Yakuza 0 stood as an undeniable challenge to this flawed approach. It didn't just encourage Japanese developers to shed their hesitation about embracing their cultural uniqueness, it forced the industry to confront the fact that the perceived limitations of Japanese games had less to do with cultural specificity and more to do with ineffective marketing strategies. In that sense, Yakuza 0 didn't just break down cultural barriers, it smashed through the walls of misperception that had been built by companies like Square. It made a resounding case for the universal appeal of deeply Japanese games, and in doing so showed that the fault lines had never really been about East versus West, but rather about understanding how to connect compelling games with eager audiences worldwide. As Bungie started work on Destiny 2, the weight of Destiny's success bore heavily upon them. The original game, while initially critiqued for its narrative shortcomings, grew a devoted player base through its expansions. This was a player base that Bungie knew they couldn't let down. Bungie decided in 2016 to throw away much of Destiny 2's in-progress content. Many original ideas, including familiar planets and locations, were cast aside, and years of effort was abandoned. However, this wasn't a simple act of discarding, it was a recalibration. The ever-expanding universe was majestic, but became increasingly challenging to manage both in narrative consistency and development resources. So, they decided to start from as you might imagine, this is an expensive proposition, and Bungie's solution was to introduce microtransactions. From the outset, Destiny 2's Eververse store ignited debates. Its introduction signaled a distinct shift in Bungie's monetization approach, one that many diehard fans met with dismay. Indeed, the move to implement a microtransaction system seemed a far cry from Bungie's earlier philosophy, which emphasized expansive universes and player-driven narratives. The reality is nuanced. On one side, there's the assertion that the pressures of creating vast amounts of content in a changing gaming landscape pushed Bungie towards the Eververse solution. From a purely developmental standpoint, one can sympathize with Bungie's struggle. They faced rising production costs and the constant demand for high-quality content. In this light, Eververse might appear as a necessary evil, a way to maintain the high production standards of Destiny 2. But then there's the shadow of Activision. Known for their aggressive monetization strategies and shareholder-first mindset, their influence cannot be discounted. While it's simplistic to place the blame squarely on them, it's hard not to speculate that Activision's profit-driven approach nudged Bungie towards the microtransaction model. This direction starkly contrasts with Bungie's more player-centric philosophy, revealing 
an evident culture mismatch. So was the Eververse store solely a Bungie initiative, or was it largely influenced by Activision's profit motives? While the exact dynamics of their partnership may never be fully transparent to the public, it's clear that there was a tussle of ideologies. Bungie's hands may have been somewhat forced, but this doesn't absolve them of responsibility. After all, they played their part in forging the partnership with Activision, likely aware of the cultural and philosophical differences. While the original Destiny was often critiqued for a fragmented narrative, Destiny 2 became a canvas for Bungie's writers to paint intricate tales. The Osiris and Warmind expansions, for instance, not only introduced players to new environments and foes, but deeply explored the lore and mythos of the Destiny universe. These narratives humanized the Guardians, the game's protagonists, and made the cosmic battles feel deeply personal. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, a revamped version of its Wii U predecessor, landed on the Nintendo Switch amidst some controversy regarding its full price tag. Despite this, it sold a staggering 40 million copies. What's particularly intriguing about this title isn't just its commercial success, it's how it served as a testament to the viability of Nintendo's hybrid console. This game made it apparent that the Switch could breathe new life into titles that were otherwise overlooked on less popular systems like the Wii U. The game's deluxe version took advantage of the Switch's hybrid nature, allowing for both portable and console play, effectively transforming the way we perceive multiplayer interactions. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe has effectively become a staple of social gaming, a sort of digital board game that people keep coming back to. Before this, Nintendo was often criticized for lagging behind in online services. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe made strides in showing that Nintendo was capable of providing a seamless online multiplayer experience, complete with various modes and customization options. This game also took inclusivity to a new level, introducing an auto-steer function, which made the game more accessible to players of all ages and skill levels, underlining Nintendo's long-standing philosophy of games being for everyone. Wolfenstein 2 The New Colossus invites a nuanced discussion. The odd thing about this title is how it's viewed today compared to its initial reception. It debuted with a Metacritic score of 88, but has, for some reason, retreated into the shadows when discussions about the most impactful FPS titles arise. The timing of its release played a role here. Bethesda's effort was sandwiched between the groundbreaking predecessor Wolfenstein The New Order and the mechanically fluid 2016 reboot of Doom by id Software. While it promised much and was adorned with jaw-dropping narrative twists, its actual gameplay mechanics have been less enduring in public memory. Yet its bold storytelling choices in a climate increasingly weary of political subtleties deserve recognition. It's a game that tackled tough themes head-on, pulling no punches in its narrative. It's easy to overlook how political charged this game was, given that it released in a period of 
heightened political discourse globally. It unabashedly explored themes of racism, totalitarianism, and resistance at a time when such topics were at the forefront of global conversations. The game managed to weave an alternate history that felt uncomfortably relevant. Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice took storytelling and gaming to a new level altogether, but through a completely different lens. Ninja Theory's venture was less about spectacle and more about nuance. What we see in Hellblade is a rigorous effort to use gameplay mechanics to serve the story, particularly in how it tackles themes of mental health and loss. The game uses audio and visual design not just as immersion tools, but as storytelling instruments. It used a real-time performance capture technology that was rarely seen in games of its scale. Actress Melina Jurgens delivered a real-time performance that got rendered instantaneously into the game's engine, thereby collapsing the wall between game development and theatrical performance. This was not just a technological showcase, but a storytelling masterstroke, as it elevated the emotional engagement of the player. Also, the game's audio design, implemented through binaural audio, simulated the experience of hearing voices, capturing the essence of Senua's psychosis. Auditory hallucinations aren't just background noise, they're integral to understanding Senua's harrowing journey, capturing the essence of what it means to deal with psychosis. This intimate form of storytelling, powered by AAA-like quality on an indie budget, further blurred the lines between what indie and AAA studios were capable of. Hellblade was a technological and emotional marvel in equal measure, contributing to the ever-blurring boundaries between cinema and interactive media. Finally, we arrive at Star Fox 2, the long-lost game developed in 1995 but released this year. This game holds a unique position as a relic of a different time, but its eventual release tells a story of change within the gaming industry. Star Fox 2 was originally canned because Nintendo felt it would conflict with the upcoming Star Fox 64. It also coincided with Argonaut Software's rather unceremonious split from Nintendo, another sign of the industry's volatile nature. Its release on the SNES Classic Edition and later the Switch Online service made it the first new Super Nintendo title to officially debut in over two decades. This release not only satiated the curiosity of longtime fans, but also raised questions about the value of historical game preservation, which is a discussion that has only intensified since. In an era where digital games can vanish from stores and online services can be terminated, Star Fox 2 serves as a reminder of the temporal fragility of the medium. In 2018, everyone wanted a piece of the PUBG pie, as developers scrambled to capitalize on the insane success of the battle royale genre. Epic Games, fueled by Fortnite's success, launched the Epic Games Store, securing a foothold in the market by offering a higher revenue share to developers. But it wasn't all fun and games. The Chinese government halted the approval of new video games, significantly impacting giants like Tencent and NetEase, even though Tencent still managed to own six of the top ten games, generating a whopping $14.2 billion in revenue. 
The year also saw sudden shutdowns and studio closures, leading to a growing call for video game industry unionization. As the industry's worth soared to over $134 billion, with 47% coming from mobile gaming, acquisition sprees by companies like THQ Nordic, now Embracer Group, and Microsoft signaled a rapidly consolidating landscape. So as we dive into the 2018 time capsule, consider these questions. How did the Battle Royale frenzy reshape the gaming industry, and what impact did the Epic Game Store have on the digital distribution landscape? The God of War reboot by Santa Monica Studio garnered significant acclaim for its reimagining of the iconic franchise. The game was lauded for its mature storytelling, intricate character development, and a shift in setting from Greek to Norse mythology. While the game is often hailed as a narrative milestone, it's essential to examine its imperfections, especially concerning character development and internal conflicts. The emotional core of God of War lies in the relationship between Kratos and his son Atreus. Although the game attempts to delve into this father-son dynamic, some critics believe it falls short of exploring the depth that this relationship could offer. Kratos's hesitancy to speak to Atreus about their godly lineage stands as a glaring omission creating missed opportunities for emotionally charged dialogues that could have elevated the narrative to new heights. The most compelling stories often delve into the internal struggles of their characters. God of War, however, seems more committed to external action than internal nuance. Despite Kratos' obvious transformation from his past life, the game offers limited insights into his inner dilemmas, his fears, and the conflicts he faces in his dual role as a god and a father. As a result, the story often feels more like a succession of action set pieces than a nuanced portrayal of godly and human emotions. The shift to Norse mythology was a promising new direction, yet the game sometimes treats these mythical landscapes as merely aesthetic settings, rather than elements that could profoundly influence character development. Atreus's development is also inconsistent, featuring abrupt transitions that seem out of place, thereby reducing the story's emotional weight and making characters feel more like plot devices than fully realized individuals. Nonetheless, it's worth noting that the game does make strides in gameplay mechanics, bringing players closer to the action and the characters through its over-the-shoulder third-person perspective and intricate combat system. However, this mechanical progress doesn't fully extend into the emotional arcs of its characters, a flaw that becomes more noticeable when compared to other titles that successfully meld gameplay and storytelling. The open-world genre had already seen its fair share of masterpieces, yet the bustling metropolis of New York City in Marvel's Spider-Man was not just another sandbox. It was a sprawling, detailed love letter to both the city itself and the Marvel Universe. But it wasn't just about the skyscrapers and neon lights. The game made every swing, every dive, every wall crawl not just look astonishingly cinematic, but feel intrinsically tied to the pulse and rhythm of the city. This wasn't just environmental design, this was world building that invited player interaction at every turn. You weren't just Spider-Man, you were Peter Parker. And New York was not just your playground, but your home 
your responsibility. The fluidity of Spider-Man's motion borrows heavily from Insomniac's earlier work on Ratchet and Clank. Those games revolutionized the way we think about mobility and verticality in 3D spaces, taking what could be considered platforming elements and imbuing them with a sense of weight, speed, and most importantly, freedom. In Spider-Man, the same design ethos is evolved and adapted for a modern audience, turning web swinging into not just a mode of transportation, but a deeply satisfying mechanic that players could invest in mastering. Superhero narratives often walk a fine line between drama and spectacle, yet this game succeeds in creating an emotional narrative that makes you care about Peter Parker just as much as Spider-Man, if not more. Not to forget, it brought into the spotlight a lesser-known character in the Spider-Man universe, Martin Lee, or Mr. Negative, which not only diversifies the rogue gallery, but also offers a more complex, emotionally-driven story. It's a narrative that understands and respects its its source material while daring to tread new ground. Fortnite not only disrupted the business model, but also shattered the paradigm of what we thought a video game could be socially and culturally. This was the game that, by double the revenue of its closest competitor, dominated the financial and social discourse around gaming and still does. Fortnite didn't merely succeed on its gameplay merits, no, it transcended gaming to become part of mainstream culture, a rare feat achieved by few titles before it. What made it special? The game doubled as a social platform, bringing people together not just for the thrill of the last man standing victory, but also as a hub for social interaction. Epic Games recognized early on that players lingered in the lobby, not just to strategize for the next match, but to talk to engage, and to simply hang out. With the Party Royale mode, you could wander aimlessly with friends, devoid of combat or objectives. In this way, Fortnite tapped into the natural human tendency for social interaction, elevating it from a mere game to an expansive digital universe, a true metaverse, if you will. What's fascinating is its ability to serve as a stage for other forms of media and entertainment. We're talking about full-fledged concerts happening inside a video game, watched by millions simultaneously from their respective living rooms. Travis Scott's in-game concert in 2020 is a headliner in this arena. It's as if Fortnite said, why separate video games from other forms of entertainment when you can combine them? In doing so, Fortnite didn't just keep its player base engaged, it welcomed new audiences, attracted by the blurring lines between video games and mainstream media. Consider that a major plot point from Star Wars Episode IX The Rise of Skywalker was exclusively broadcast through Fortnite, and if you didn't play the game, well, you didn't get to see that central piece of the plot. The industry was grappling with controversies surrounding loot boxes and microtransactions. Fortnite sidestepped these pitfalls by employing a battle pass system that was both transparent, generous, and voluntary. It showed the industry that ethical monetization isn't just good practice, it's 
profitable. Fortnite has established a blueprint for games as live services. Its seasonal updates and ever-evolving world provide a model for keeping a community engaged. While its forays into cross-media events has given us a glimpse into the future of digital interactive entertainment. The game's framework and philosophies have been emulated but seldom duplicated because what Fortnite accomplished is not just a product of mechanics or economics, it's a zeitgeist, a cultural phenomenon that happened at the right place at the right time with the right technology. Digital Extremes, a Canadian-based studio known for previous successes like Epic Pinball and contributions to the Unreal series, found themselves at a crossroads. Struggling with the logistical complexities of collaborating with other major players like Epic Games, they took a daring leap with Dark Sector. Although not a groundbreaking success, this title marked a pivotal moment for the studio, encapsulating their desire for creative freedom and steering them away away from offers that didn't align with their vision. Warframe was conceived against this backdrop, partly as a calculated risk to stay afloat, and partly as an expansive canvas for creative ideas. The game's reliance on procedural level design was not just a financial necessity, it became the foundation for dynamic, ever-changing landscapes that offered players an unparalleled level of unpredictability and replay value, rarely seen in free-to-play games. The game also distinguished its through a unique aesthetic, an amalgamation of influences from European mythologies to space operas. Major updates like the Plains of Eidolon not only expanded the gameplay, but also enriched the game's artistic identity, showcasing an audacious individualism often absent in mainstream market-driven titles. Five years after its 2013 release, Warframe entered a transformative phase, highlighted by the TennoCon event, which revealed several free updates and pulled back the curtain on the game's development process through a two-part no-clip YouTube documentary. This was the moment when Warframe moved from being a cult classic to gaining mainstream attention. In an industry often criticized for predatory microtransactions and pay-to-win mechanics, Warframe set itself apart by pledging to never erect paywalls, thereby maintaining a community-focused ecosystem. Its approach made it not just a commercial product, but a case study in community management, and a testament to what can be co-created by developers and players alike. Warframe's story serves as a compelling narrative about adaptability, vision, and the strength of community and developer collaboration. Each update acts as a new chapter in an ever-evolving epic tale, enriching both the game and its community. In an era dominated by algorithmically engineered gaming experiences, Warframe stands out as a beacon of defiant creativity, community cooperation, and unwavering commitment to artistic integrity. It remains an enduring example of what is possible in the dynamic and rapidly evolving world of modern gaming. Red Dead Redemption 2 told the story of Arthur Morgan, a man caught in the ideological rifts and changing tides of the American frontier. It was a narrative deeply rooted in a setting that both romanticized and critiqued the era it portrayed. The narrative drive behind Arthur Morgan's tale brought an emotional dimension to open-world games that's usually reserved for more linear narratives. Morgan, a member of the Vanderlind gang, wrestles with loyalty, survival, and his 
own evolving code of ethics in a world steadily grinding down the outlaw lifestyle. It's an ambitious approach, one that required incredibly detailed character writing, voice acting, and an array of intricate systems governing player choices and interactions. This element reshaped what players could expect from choices in an open world game. No longer was it merely about branching paths, but about subtle, personal consequences, a model which games have continued to emulate but seldom match. Speaking of the world, its sheer depth, dynamic nature, and intricate systems interact in ways that raise the bar for realism in gaming. The game doesn't just allow you to hunt, it demands you do it skillfully. You can't just rob a train, you have to plan it from the route to the crew to the getaway. The world lives and reacts around you in an organic way. The game employs an honor system affected by the player's actions, whether it's committing a crime or helping a passerby. It sounds simple on paper, but the ripple effects shape everything, from the story outcome to everyday interactions. It's a system that has set a gold standard for environmental reactivity. Of course, not everybody likes this, and Red Dead 2 is controversial for its slavish devotion to realism for realism's sake. And it's a common discussion starter for whether or not games respect your time. Red Dead Redemption 2 cleaned house during the 2018 Game Awards, but ultimately lost Game of the Year to God of War. Yet it managed to reinvigorate debates about what a AAA title should aim for, profit or art. The game's painstaking attention to detail in everything from horse anatomy to historically accurate firearms presented a logistical and financial gamble that few other studios would dare to take. The game reportedly took eight years and an alleged 100 million or more dollars to develop. That's almost unheard of, and yet it paid off, not just financially, but as a reference point for what's possible in the realm of interactive storytelling. No Man's Sky, here's a name that's synonymous with comeback stories in video gaming. When it launched in 2016, the game was hyped to be the next big thing. The universe was your playground, or so it seemed, from the ambitious trailers and lofty promises. But what consumers got was far from it, leading to a PR catastrophe. Yet the story didn't end there. The game didn't fade into the obscurity of digital marketplaces as some had predicted. Instead, it's become a study in redemption and in many ways represents the positive yet challenging aspect of game development in the late 2010s. The evolution of No Man's Sky is especially interesting because it defied the prevalent ship it and forget it model that plagued many video game releases at the time. Let's not forget 2018 was a year where discussions about microtransactions, loot boxes, and minimal post-launch support were rampant. In contrast, Hello Games, led by Sean Murray, chose a different route. They got to work, issuing patches that transformed the game. According to Murray, each update saw greater commercial success than the last. It's a telling tale of a developer's commitment to quality, and more importantly, to their player base. By the time the next expansion was rolled out in 2018, No Man's Sky was not just back, it was thriving. It surged into the top 10 most played games on Steam. 
That's right, a game that was essentially written off two years earlier was now competing for eyeballs with the likes of Fortnite and PUBG. It became what Sean Murray had initially envisioned, and dare I say it even surpassed those first trailers that led many to board the hype train. No Man's Sky is built around procedural generation, but it's not just any procedural generation, it's an entire universe generated through algorithms. That's celestial bodies, life forms, weather patterns, everything. It's so intricately designed that players are still discovering new species, geological formations, and even glitches that turn into features. This procedural generation serves as a metaphor for the game itself. Always changing, always surprising, but governed by a consistent set of underlying principles. Perhaps one of the most under-discussed aspects of No Man's Sky is its community engagement model. Hello Games established what can best be described as a conversational feedback loop. It wasn't the toxic ranting of disappointed players versus the stoic silence of developers. Through platforms like Reddit, Twitter, and even direct feedback, Hello Games has done something incredibly tricky. They've made their audience part of the narrative. Sean Murray's willingness to publicly face criticism, apologize, and chart a path forward is a shift in developer-player dynamics that many AAA studios have yet to fully grasp. As for its legacy, no Man's Sky defined the digital disposable culture that characterized much of the gaming industry at the time. Many developers would have moved on to another project, leaving behind a half-finished game and a disgruntled community. Instead, Hello Games delivered continuous updates, expansions, and improvements that genuinely considered player feedback. They changed the endgame for what post-launch commitment should look like. Subnautica, initially released in 2014, came into its own with the full release and console ports, and accomplished something that so few games can boast of. Meaningful isolation. You're alone, lost in an alien ocean, and every dive you make into the abyss is a step into the unknown. The game turned the ocean itself into a character, an entity that's not so much an adversary as it is a home. It was a clear innovation in environmental storytelling. Not only were you surviving, you were deciphering a story that the ocean whispered through its caves, coral reefs, and terrifying depths. This undercurrent of lore was often overlooked, but it's what imbued every quest for resources with intrigue, every crafted item with a sense of achievement not just for survival, but for enlightenment. Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, what a phenomenon! If you take a moment to think about it, the game served as a de facto tour guide to the wider world of gaming. For a newbie who picks up a controller, they're not just getting exposed to Mario or Pikachu, they're meeting Solid Snake, Cloud Strife, and Banjo-Kazooie. Good luck finding another fighting game that's ever going to outdo this amalgamation of virtually every significant character from gaming history. It wasn't just a roster, it was a literal who's who, a living museum of gaming icons. Thrust into combat in one of the most frenetic and yet accessible fighting games ever made. 
We're talking about more than fan service here. We're talking about a game that simultaneously acted as an introduction to characters some younger players may not have known, while also providing intricate gameplay mechanics that rewarded skill and dedication. It serves as a robust handshake between generations of gamers, something that transcends the boundaries of franchises and even platforms. Monster Hunter World. This title didn't just make the Monster Hunter series more accessible, it redefined what accessibility in a traditionally intricate genre could look like. The world was open, the combat mechanics polished, and the progression system gratifyingly complex. The cooperative hunts provided a social interaction level that was not about outdoing each other, but about working together to take down behemoths. It was a game that said, look, you don't have to do this alone, and if you want to, good luck, but we think you'll have more fun this way. Plus, there's the fact that the game managed to provide DLC and updates that both veterans and newcomers found enriching, a tightrope few games managed to walk well. Now, Celeste's narrative and mechanics are a masterful blend. We know that. It perfectly encapsulated the spirit of what indie games were doing, blending impeccable gameplay with emotionally resonant narratives. You got a game that's not only challenging to play, but also challenges your understanding of mental health battling inner demons, both figuratively and literally. It's not just a hard game, it's a game about overcoming hardship. You start out struggling to climb both a mountain and your internal world of doubt and fear. Every failed jump, every slip into a pit of spikes, is not a defeat, but a lesson in persistence and self-improvement. The game's assist mode, which lets you modify the game's mechanics to suit your skill level, isn't a concession, but an extension of its core message, that it's okay to seek help, to modify your environment to suit your needs, and that your value isn't determined by how you compare to others. And of course, 2018 gave us Raid Shadow Legends. Now, I could tell you about Raid's console level graphics, hundreds of champions, but Raid did not spawn this. But let's not dismiss the game entirely. It's a harbinger of how aggressively mobile gaming was pushing into traditional gaming conversations. The ubiquitous nature of raid ads serves as a snapshot of mobile gaming's ever-increasing marketing reach. It adopted elements traditionally found in RPGs like hero collection, team composition, and strategic combat, and restructured them to serve the microtransaction model more efficiently. This isn't just about raid, though. It's a snapshot of a broader shift in how game design was being influenced by monetization strategies, an indication of the seismic shifts occurring in business models underlying the gaming industry. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.